0: Well, um, as Trev said at the beginning, uh, the, nature has shown us this week how puny we are compared to that. And nature, of course, can hold no uh, comparison to God. But uh, nature can affect us, can affect our lives. It can also affect not just individuals, but it can affect um, society's companies like airlines. And so uh, yesterday about noon, David Packer called and said, all my flights are canceled and train service is not possible. And there is, he said, I am packed on my way out the door and there is no way for me to get you. He said, I sold my car yesterday. Um, so he said, I am really well-dressed to just sit at home for the rest of the day. So, um, anyway, I was looking forward to hearing David, looking forward to seeing him. As I've mentioned before, we've been friends since the mid-80s and haven't seen each other since. We reconnected on Facebook. So, we do look forward to David being back with us. And uh, so, all that to say in God's good providence, where you can decide if it's good <laughs> later on. But um, I'm, I'm it for today. So, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30, or to find Proverbs 30 in your Bible while I get my technology going here. There we go. Uh, So we're talking from Proverbs 30 today, and for our visitors, we've been in a a, a series of of studies in the book of Proverbs. Um, And the first few, uh, first nine chapters, of course, we dealt fairly straightforward just walking through those together. After that, we've gone five or six messages over various topics about about who God is and who we are in various ways that wisdom affects our lives, like in our wealth, our work, our relationships, things like that. So today we look at what I've called wisdom, wonder, and the world. So these are the words of a man named Agur. Uh, he was evidently a king, son of Yakeh. That's about all we know about him, except that it's clear from this that he is a worshiper of Yahweh. And that's good. But That's part of why I I included world in the title. I wanted us to think at the beginning today about how the words of a Gentile king could find their way into scripture. How how is this possible? And what we'll find, I believe, is that this gives us a good and healthy model for engaging the culture around us. And then what we will see is Agur expresses wonder at different things he encounters as he looks around at his life. and and makes observations. So that's the general plan for today. Um, So we've seen in our exploration so far that wisdom is tied to God's covenant with creation. Uh, It's more tied to his covenant with creation than to his covenant with Israel. So it shouldn't surprise us that wisdom is not confined only to Israel. There was actually a class of people that were called the wise or wise men, often known for their insight, appropriately so, and often served as royal counselors. Um, Even the Old Testament identifies wise men in Babylon, Tyre, Edom, and Persia. So this is a recognized class category of people. It also should not surprise us that they wrote things and that we have a class, a category of literature called wisdom writings or wisdom literature. And those also can be found outside of Israel. Now they reflect different kinds of wisdom, we understand that, but that is the the category of people and that's what their writings are called. And so what we've been looking at in terms of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs and Job, all of those fit into that same category of wisdom literature. These uh, compiled and written in many cases by Solomon, compiled by those in his court, things like that. And in fact, There have been wisdom texts that have been discovered that come from Egypt and from Babylon. And when we look at them, it's very clear that Israel's wise men, Israel's wise, were quite open to looking at those, taking them, and using them. But they didn't do it uncritically, and that's what we need to see. So we have, for example, the words of Agur that are in chapter 30, Uh, We have the words of King Lemuel in part of chapter 31. And it seems like at least some of the sayings of the wise, chapters 22 to 24, are part of this as well. So all of these are very similar to parts of ancient wisdom texts that come from other nations. So the New Testament, we we hear this and we think, well, what about the inspiration of Scripture? The Bible is clear that all Scripture is God-breathed, and yet you're telling me that, you know, someone from Israel pops over to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to Tyre or Persia and snags a few Proverbs and bring them back to like, or you know, is he listening on the radio to Persian pop songs? You know, what is going on? Uh, is this possible? Is this, does this affect our view of scripture? Well, it should not, okay? We understand that all scripture is inspired by God, but it doesn't tell us how these writings came to be, okay? We understand that whatever the process is, God is ultimately behind it all. So we have some parts of scripture that God spoke verbatim. He spoke to people and expected that message to be passed on verbatim, word for word. In other cases, there were stories that circulated among God's people. Those were eventually committed to writing. The case of the letters, those were written, started out written, not oral, and they were eventually collected, became part of the New Testament. Um, So in fact, in Luke, Luke's gospel, he says, Basically, in fact, I was not an eyewitness to these things, but I spoke, I've spoken to eyewitnesses. So Luke's gospel represents eyewitness testimony, but it's people that he spoke to. He says that in the first four verses of the gospel according to Luke. So we can acknowledge that God made use of wisdom from other nations without that undermining our view of Scripture, just in case you had that question. That's what I do for a living. I answer questions that people aren't asking. So. So as I said earlier, the use of these wisdom writings from other nations gives us a good example, a good model for how we can engage the culture around us. Now throughout history, God's people have typically gone toward two extremes in their dealings with their engagement with with surrounding culture. We either tend toward total withdrawal, kind of an adversarial relationship, or we lean toward uncritical acceptance. And neither of those extremes is healthy, right? We understand there is a way to navigate these things critically and wisely. So I wanna suggest four things that help us think about this and I am indebted to Christopher Wright for these, i paraphrased a bit, but still the thoughts came from him. First is that we can be open to the wisdom of the nations, of of the surrounding culture. See, because we understand that based on creation, everyone is created in the image of God, we can be open to these things. We can expect to find some things that we can affirm we don't have to be afraid of songs and books and movies, of artistic works, creative productions, of scientific discoveries. We don't have to be afraid afraid to engage with those things. Okay, we, don't, we should not automatically dismiss. We can be open. We can also acknowledge that in these things, there are common human concerns expressed. So wisdom, Wisdom literature, it is concerned and occupied with the meaning of life, how to live it well. So there are issues like character and wealth and work and words and relationships and all of these things. And all of these things show up in everything the world creates, right? Most pop songs are about love or loss that everyone experiences, whether they are a believer in Christ or not. So we find common human concerns expressed in these things. But, Biblical wisdom adds another layer to this. They add this layer of honest wrestling with the inevitable hard questions of life. And this is what we see, especially in Job and in Ecclesiastes. And this is the beauty of biblical wisdom literature. It compels us as believers to accept those things honestly and admit in all honesty, there are doubts that we don't entirely resolve. And there are questions for which we do not entirely have every answer. So no, we don't have all the answers to everyone's questions, and we don't have to. But as I have said, especially as my kids have grown up and sought to own the faith that that we raised them to believe, and as they sought to personalize that, I've had to say, you know, I have questions too. I don't have the answer to every question, but I've gotten enough answers that I know there are more. So... I'm okay with this. But we can have an honest faith that admits we don't have all the answers. We can wrestle honestly with the hard questions of life. And so this allows us to engage the world around us with honesty, and also with humility. So we can be open, we can acknowledge the common concerns, but then we must critique the wisdom of the nations. We don't accept things Uncritically, Israel didn't accept the wisdom from other nations uncritically. They they disinfected it in light of their own faith. So what happened is they would purge it of idolatrous elements, things that, that were out of character, out of line with God's word that they already had. And so this was not an uncritical, you know, uh, control C control V thing. <laughs> that makes sense to you if you have a Mac command C command V. So, I do have a Mac, I confess, I've switched, made the switch, the dark side. So, late in time is, late adapter is what I do. So, we critique this wisdom, we can be open to it, we don't have to be afraid of it, but we also should not be afraid to critique it and to point out areas of sin and selfishness and idolatry that are a part of the world's wisdom, and those are very much a part of this world's wisdom. Sin and selfishness and idolatry, and we can point those things out. And then fourth, we need to steer the conversation to Christ and to the gospel. Because wisdom literature, as we've seen, it doesn't have the gospel explicitly in it, but it is a wonderful bridge to the gospel because there are these common concerns, because there is some sense of creation tied to this, we have common ground. So cross the bridge, get to Christ, get to the gospel. Now, we've talked about affirming, critiquing. When I'm saying get to the gospel, I'm not saying, you listen to what somebody says, and then you say, that's nice, you're a sinner going to hell, let me tell you about Jesus, okay? That's, that's not what I mean by you know, engaging well, okay? We need to be able to listen to affirm what we can, but also to offer a wise and, and robust critique. Um, I will confess, um, I'm, I get annoyed sometimes, and I, I don't even. I wish I, I shouldn't say this because now you'll all do it just to watch my, me get annoyed. When somebody says to me, "Well, I'm no theologian," and I think, "Well, you know, if you're a follower of Christ, you should be a theologian." Now, understand, nobody wants to be that that person who's closed up in a tower, totally disconnected from real life, whose knowledge is all theoretical. I, I get that. Who uh, you know goes down deeper, stay, stays under longer, and comes up drier than anybody else. Okay. So think about that one. All right. Nobody wants to be that, but if anybody should be able to engage robustly, deeply, rigorously with a biblical worldview to their culture, it should be us. It should be you. Don't be afraid of good theology. Okay. It's good. It is good for you. It is good for the people you engage. Go deep in God's word. Read good theology. Learn. Think about how to engage the culture around you. Now, a lot of our culture today, a lot of the, the wisdom that we interact with comes in the form of pop culture, movies and songs and books, digital media, things like that. So I know a lot of you know Ted Turneau. Ted's lived in Prague for many years, teaches at Anglo-American University. And a few years ago, uh, Ted wrote a book called Popologetics, and that is about the relationship between pop culture and apologetics. And honestly, the process he talks about is quite similar to what we've seen in, as we've talked about how to engage you know, um, modern culture here. That is, um, not, not being afraid, but being open, affirming what you can, but critiquing what you can and getting to the gospel. So you can find the book, it's on Kindle. It's, uh, it's around, is it at Crossroads? Yes, it's across meant to ask you before service. Yeah, so it is a crossroads at the library that Jim and Laurie Barnes operate in the center. So, um, and you held up a one, that means there's a significant discount for anybody that... No, I'm just joking. Uh, So, uh, go see, uh, talk to the Barnes after the service. Do you have books for sale or just at the library? Okay, perfect. So... um, Yeah, talk to them. The book is is good, it's accessible. I think you'll find it a good resource. So with that said, let's take a few minutes to walk through Proverbs 30 and see now what the things that that evoked in King Agur wonder. What are the things that have amazed him as he reflects on life? Uh, The first is this age old question, where do I find wisdom? So we see in verse one, the words of Agur, son of Yakeh, the oracle, The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Now this verse, commentators all agree it is quite difficult to translate. There are a lot of different things it could mean. It could mean if you're using an English Bible, there are at least three significantly different English translations of this. And that's okay. I've I've gone with the English Standard Version because I think it fits better, the best, with the context of the others. uh, Because he confesses his his weariness his exhaustion that he is worn out from his struggle to understand so he speaks of the limits of human understanding he conf- but let's just notice his confession of his lack of understanding is actually an expression of the humility that we understand is essential for wisdom so he's probably being kind of hard on himself but you know if somebody comes in boasting of their wisdom you think you're probably an idiot, right? <laughs> you probably don't know as much as you think you do. So, you know, but the person who expresses their lack of wisdom, who senses their limits of their own wisdom and their need for God's wisdom, they're they're in a better place. It is like Jesus said, "blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Someone who realizes their their spiritual poverty is in a better place. So then, uh he expresses the, the limitations of our of religion, of, of our human understanding. So in verse 2, he says, Surely I am only a brute and not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Who's gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is the name of his son? Surely you know. Now the mention of heaven and wind and water and earth all call to mind creation. This is a way of pointing us to the creator. Our minds, our understanding is limited, but God as the creator, his understanding, and his wisdom, his knowledge, it is not limited. It is infinite. And while Agur is not really looking for a name, we can give him one, right? Because Jesus is the son of God who has come from heaven, who has revealed God to us. So what was a mystery to him? We can, we can at least declare this much that we do have a name, and his name is Jesus. But then in contrast to the limits of human understanding, a word testifies of the trustworthy nature of the word of God. Verse 5, every word of God is flawless. The idea here is that it's been tested. This is not a theoretical knowledge, but the word of God is tested and found true and flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So notice, notice just the grace there. It doesn't say he's a shield to those who keep the law. It doesn't say he's a shield to those who act well. He said he is a shield to those who take refuge. So do you, are you needy this morning? You come to him. Okay? You, don't, you don't have to perform. He, he invites you to come in your brokenness and in your need, your hunger and your thirst. Come to him and he will be a refuge for you. He will be a shield for you if you will seek refuge in him. And then verse 6 has this warning. Don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. So that takes us back to Deuteronomy 4 where God tells Moses to tell the people, you don't add words to my words so that Israel can keep my commandments. The idea is that if we, well, if we take words away, that means we don't know what to obey. But if you add words, that means you are expecting things of people that God does not. And that is exactly what happened with the Pharisees in the days of Jesus. They had had their own traditions, year by year, had added lesser commands. Their their mentality or their intent was, if we can keep people from breaking smaller laws, that will keep them from breaking greater laws. So by Jesus' day, they were totally focused on the smaller laws. And some of those are insane, like you, you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because the spit would disturb the earth and that would be like plowing, which would be like working. And you know, the command is to not work. And so they would get mad if you spat on the ground. <laughs> they would feel like you'd broken the law of God and Jesus didn't put up with human traditions. Now, he honored the law of God, but he challenged them on that very thing. They put their hope and it elevated human tradition to the place of the word of God. So. That is at least part of why this warning is here, don't add to his words, because that puts a burden on God's people that they're not meant to have, okay? Then um, we, when we go to verse seven, we see a, the prayer of Agur, and here he is amazed by his own tendency to idolatry. He's, and these, we've looked at these before in some of the earlier studies in Proverbs, but we'll, so we'll look at it just briefly now. He says in verse seven, two things I ask of you, Lord, And that's Yahweh, right? God's covenant name. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So we see what he's concerned about. Two kinds of idolatry. The kind that would say, I will sacrifice my integrity to get something I want. So he says, keep falsehood and lies far from me because I, I am prone to falsehood. I am prone to lying to get something that I want more. And yet by doing so, he, he compromises. And it's, it's a form of idolatry. And then he, we see this prayer for contentment because both wealth and poverty can be expressions of idolatry. We understand that wealth can cause us to forget God, as he says here. It can, cause us to, it can give us a false sense of security. It can do other Things, it can bring good things, but it can also bring challenges, right? But also poverty can do this. See, the the root of this is a love of money, a worship of money. If you worship and love money and you have a lot, then you put your hope and confidence in it. If you love money and you don't have a lot, you become resentful and you resort perhaps to stealing and in that way, dishonor God. Again, as we have seen time after time, the issue, is not the thing that you have, it is your heart. So then we go to verse 10 and we find his wonder over the power of words. He says, don't slander a servant to their master or they will curse you and you will pay for it. We've talked about the law of consequences many times, but this warning is directed to sort of the middle person, the person who stands between the servant and the master. He slanders the servant to the master. The implication is for personal gain. But as we have seen time and time again in God's wisdom, God, God really doesn't like secrets and truth comes out as it is made known. There are consequences for false accusations and slander. then we see starting at verse 11, Agur's wonder at human rebellion. And we see a, a general principle that the way someone relates to their parents is often expressed in how they relate to others throughout their life. And this is expressed both in words and in actions. Verse 11, it says, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Notice how, often, how much of this is verbal, how much of this is, is word spoken. Those who are pure in their own eyes, yet are not cleansed of their filth. Those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful. Those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind. So you see how much words are involved here. And there seems to be a progression as well. It is, they dishonor their parents because they're they're deaf to their parents' rebuke. They don't see their own flaws. They are blind to their own flaws. They become arrogant. And then they attack those who are vulnerable in both word and deed. Well, let's skip down to verse 17 to see their end. It says, the eye that mocks a father that scorns an aged mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley and will be eaten by the vultures. Now, let me just say as a parent, this is a really good verse to quote to your kids <laughs> when they talk back to you. I will confess, I have done it. I've done it many times. <laughs> I was like, you stop talking or the ravens of the valley. are going to pluck your eyes out. And of course, you know, maybe that's why my kids don't take me seriously today. I don't know. But the mention of vultures, of course, so vultures feed on carcasses, not on the living, but on the dead. The idea, the implication here is that the person who lives this way, their end is going to be dying alone, no burial, you're just your carcass is just rotting on the ground somewhere where no one sees it. And that for most people, especially in those times, was a fate worse than death. It was not only a death, but a dishonorable death. But notice Their violence, what what got them started on this road, was their disrespect of parental authority. And so, young people, you can hear this message again. It's not the first time I've said it. You need to know everyone, every one of us here today, online, wherever you are, every person is under some kind of authority. And the sooner you learn how to relate to the authority in your life, the better your life will be, okay? And home is the place to start. (laughs) It is. So young people, children, the ones who aren't in Sunday school, and the ones who are, but you can't hear me, obey your parents. Respect their authority. And parents, don't raise your kids to be like this. And no parent starts out thinking, I'm going to raise my child to be this violent, terrible person. No, no parent thinks like that, right? But if we fail to discipline our children appropriately, that can't happen. Now, sometimes it does happen anyway, right? We understand there are prodigal children. We understand we've seen this, that is, that our adult children make choices over which we have no control. And so we're just left to, to walk through it day by day, Right? I understand that does happen, but to the degree that, that you have the responsibility and the influence over your children, address issues of rebellion lovingly, but do it. I'm not saying abuse. I am saying address rebellion, teach your children to respect authority. Now, if we back up to verse 15, what we find are uh, the, the first of several sets of proverbs that use numbers. The commentators suggest that the the increasing number in each one of these suggests that this is not an exhaustive list, but there are actually many more examples of this. Now, the first group is a warning against parasites. Now, here I've got a picture of a leech. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that cute? Don't you want one? (laughs) So the leech has two suckers, one at each end of the body. You can see those there. They're fastened on a, a hand or arm there. So we see in verse 15, the leech has two daughters. That's the reference to the two suckers at each end, right? It says, give, give, they cry. I think it's maybe better to say their names are give and give. Two daughters, their names are give and give. That is constantly demanding, constantly draining the life from its host. And then following this, there are four more things that act pretty much like the leech, right? Right? says that second part of verse 15, there are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. And these, there's some kind of, I guess, a personification going on here, but there is the grave that constantly welcomes the dead, that constantly receives the dead, and is never satisfied because death is ongoing, right? It is, there are more people dying today, more will die tomorrow. The grave is never satisfied. The grave will never say enough. I'm done. The grave will have to bow to Jesus as it has already through his own resurrection. But that is involuntary. Death has been defeated by Christ. But at this point, death still acts like a leash that that draws the dead into the grave. There is the barren womb that yearns for conception, cannot get enough, that is desperate. And again, in this day, in, in, in biblical times, to not have a child, especially to not have a son, this was not just... This was an emotional hardship. It was a financial hardship because you would have to trust sons to take care of aging parents and things like that. So this is, this is not just a status thing. It's a, it's a real need, right? So there's a, you, and you read this, if you read scripture and the, the stories of women who could not conceive, there was a sense of desperation, uh, uh, just a, uh, an intense desire to conceive a child. And then there is land, which You know, receives the rain, constantly receiving it, and never satisfied. The land is not going to say, that's enough. The rain can stop. And then the last is fire that is always hungry, always looking for something to consume. And the fire never says enough. Fire has to be put out. It rarely dies on its own. So this is a warning against greedy and parasitic people. You know them, right? Somebody's face just came to (laughs) mind. Like, yeah, I know someone like that. They drain the life out of me. The, um, they drain the energy. They would use all of my time and energy if, if they could, right? Well, you you may have to avoid people like that, but hear me, don't be one of those either, okay? Don't be a parasite. <laughs> um, fear the Lord, walk in wisdom. Don't be one who drains life from other people. Now this is followed by a gorgeous wonder at how idolizing pleasure blinds us to consequences. So we read in verse 18, there are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. So how should we understand this? Well, the eagle flies through the sky and there is no discernible effect upon the sky. And he This eagle, he gives no thought to where he has been or what's the effect on the sky. The snake slithers across the rock and has no discernible effect on the rock and gives no thought to what's happened to the rock as I've taken this path. The ship is on the high seas, especially, again, this is written before there's, you know, motorized ocean travel. (laughs) You know, this is pure sailing. So, you know, there's little or no thought given to the effect of the ship on the sea. And then men and women do something similar. They engage in their relationships. And in verse 20, this takes on a sexual tone. They engage in sexual immorality without giving it a thought. As if their activity has no effect on themselves or their partner. But unlike the snake and the eagle and the ship, they could not be more wrong need to understand that within the last century, it, it seems to have happened that the chief expression of human flourishing is sexual freedom. And the chief, the chief enemy of human flourishing, flourishing is sexual restraint. The sexual relationship is the gift of God to a man and woman in covenant relationship. This includes the the willingness to accept responsibility for raising children together. This is a pleasurable part of married life, but it is life-giving because life results from from that relationship. And in marriage, that means the the husband and wife must be willing, it is not just to enjoy the pleasure of the moment, but to accept the responsibility of the children that come from that union. Um, You know, I mean, we were, well, we were, let's just say we were very surprised uh, not long after we were married to find that we were expecting our first child. Our first child was born nine months and five days after our wedding. Yeah. But that was a... <laughs> yeah, that's right, we'll take you. We had three more accidents after that. So, <laughs> that's, that's okay. Very, very happy accidents. But while we were surprised, we had to accept this is God's gift to us, and God seemed fit to entrust a child to us. Then, then, okay. <laughs> there's there's no rewind button on this. We are we are moving forward. We'll accept his child, seek to raise him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and he's turned out pretty well, more like his mom than his dad. We hope. So, but just understand there is a sense of responsibility. But in the 20th century, things like the invention of the birth control pill, and I know there are there can be, there are positive. Benefits to that as a medicine, whatever, I won't (laughs) get into details. But um, um, what it did was give rise to this false belief that there can be sexual activity without responsibility and without consequences. And this is a lie, okay? There are always consequences. And you hear me say that and you think, well, you're crazy. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sexually active. I know people are sexually active and lightning doesn't strike. No, lightning didn't strike yesterday. Maybe not today there are consequences, they will come. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. Because this relationship is far more than a, a physical act. It is emotional, it's even spiritual, and the consequences of abusing it are also not only physical, but emotional and spiritual. And there is a price to pay, so I just urge you not to take that, that relationship, I beg you not to take that relationship casually. Because it is far more than casual. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the, the man who unites with a prostitute becomes one with her. There's far more than a physical act that, and an exchange of money. There's so much more happening that, that we're perhaps not even aware of. Not, not cognizant of. So, alright, the, the dinosaur spoken. We'll move forward. Verse 21. Agur now wonders at the idolatry that brings further trouble. Verse 21, he he says, under three things the earth trembles and under four it cannot bear up. The first is a servant who becomes king. Now, each of these four is some form of idolatry. The servant idolizes, he makes an idol of the king's power and position. And he thinks, if I were king, I would run the kingdom this way or that way. And maybe he gets that that chance, but it's a disaster. It's like the, I think I've mentioned the movie Bruce Almighty before, where where, um, Jim Carrey, Title Role, Bruce complains to God he could do a better job of running the world, and so God, in the form of Morgan Freeman, no comment, but he, you know, he says, Okay, for a day you can have all my power, but he has none of God's wisdom, none of God's goodness, and he's entirely self centered, and it's a disaster, right? It's the same principle here. Uh, the second idolater here is the godless fool who gets plenty to eat. Here, his idol is his appetites, whatever he wants. That's all he cares for. He doesn't look past the next meal. It could be satisfaction. It may not be food. It may be other appetites. That is his God. It's like Paul described in Philippians three, those whose, whose God is their belly. They are driven only by their appetite and they do not see beyond it. And with a full belly, they're worthless. In the verse 23, that it is a contemptible woman who gets married. That's clear. He's not talking about the, the kind woman who has not yet found a husband. He's talking about someone who's deficient in character, who's deeply flawed. And she makes an idol of the relationship, but it seems like the reason she wants this relationship is so she has someone to control. Because once she gets control, once she, she gets what she desires, she ruins his life. And then there is the servant who displaces her mistress. So here's a maidservant who, who's working for another woman, and she envies the position, the status, the life, that her mistress has, but if she gets it, it destroys us. In each of these cases, there is an idol made of something and becomes more important than anything else. And when they receive it, what they find is that it destroys them and it consumes them. And it is that way with any idol you have. Anything that you put your faith, hope, and love in other than Christ himself, it will consume you it can be wealth and you'll never feel wealthy enough it can be beauty and you'll always feel ugly it can be pleasure and you will lose your ability to have intimacy anything else that you put your hope in besides christ will consume you and it will destroy you so as john says first john five little children flee idolatry right Verse 24, Agur is amazed by the wisdom seen in the animal world. He says, four things on earth are small, yet they're extremely wise. So ants have little strength, but they store up their food in the summer. They are diligent. So here's four kinds of weakness, four challenges. Ants are small. What do they know how to do? And yet they have enough wisdom and foresight and diligence to prepare food for hard times. Hyraxes are creatures of little power, yet they can make their home in crags. That is, in in small rock places that are very accessible. They find safety in difficult places. Next slide is a picture of a hyrax. Doesn't he look nice? (laughs) Isn't he cute? Like you wouldn't think a creature like that could make a home among rocks. And yet, they do. Because they seek safety in this environment. That is how God has made them to function and operate and there is wisdom in that. Um, the third example is the locusts who have no king, and yet they advance together in ranks. This is the discipline to advance together without centralized leadership. It is a discipline to cooperate. And then fourth, there is the lizard. The lizard can be caught by the hand, yet it can be found in king's palaces. The lizard is defenseless, has, doesn't have sharp teeth, doesn't have poisonous bite, doesn't have... You know, some lizards can change color, they can blend in, but for the most part, they're defenseless, they're easily caught, and yet, they, can, they have the audacity to enter a king's palace and get there unnoticed. So, four challenges in life, four ways to, to meet them, diligence, discipline, I'm sorry, diligence, foresight, discipline, um, safety in hard places, audacity to enter the palace, Right. Then in verse 29, we find Ogur wondering at four things whose bearing reflects honor that is due to them. So he says in verse 29, there are three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately bearing, a lion mighty among beasts who retreats before nothing, a strutting rooster, a heat goat, and a king secure against revolt. I will confess, I mean, having grown up, when well, you know, my dad was a farmer, grown up around livestock, There's really nothing about roosters and goats that really just evoke a sense of honor with me, but we'll go with it, okay? We can understand the lion because we watch Discovery Channel. Um, But we get the king who is secure against revolt. Here's a person who is exercising authority. He's perhaps battle seasoned. And as scripture admonishes and tells us in other places, we should give honor to whom honor is due. And so there's a sense in which this king, by his bearing, evokes a sense of honor that is not a sense of idolatry. There's a a radical difference between giving honor to whom honor is due and putting our hope in in these. And then in the last two verses, we see our gross wonder at the law of consequences. He says in verse 32, "'If you play the fool and exalt yourself, "'or if you plan evil, clap your hand over your mouth. "'For as churning cream produces butter, "'as twisting the nose produces blood, "'so stirring up anger produces strife.'" So it is clear from Proverbs, and many times we've looked at it, there is the law of consequences. There are consequences to our actions here. Excuse me, butter is the inevitable result of churning the cream. Bleeding is the inevitable result of twisting the nose. And strife, which is an unpleasant outcome, but that's what happens. Strife is the result of stirring up conflict. We read in Proverbs 6 before that the, one of the things the Lord hates is someone who stirs up conflict, dissension among God's people. So strife is the result of stirring up conflict. As one writer said, those who make trouble get trouble. You're looking for a problem, and you might find it, right? So as we reflect on Proverbs, as what we've seen today and in previous weeks, one of the greatest lessons to me is that this is not about what you know, but about what you desire and what you love. It is about the heart. It's always about the heart. You're not a brain on a stick, okay? You are a creature of God that is made to worship and love and exercise faith, hope, and love and Wisdom is a part of bringing those things under the authority of Christ. We naturally love and desire the wrong things. So in chapter one, we heard that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Where does it start? How do I get on the path to wisdom? It starts with your own heart attitude toward God. From a New Testament perspective, this means abandoning hope in yourself and giving up control of your life, giving up your idols, maybe, Some of the things we've read about today, you resonate with you as maybe idols in your life, but you give up your control, your misplaced faith, hope, and love. You give those things up to Christ because he is worthy of your faith, hope, and love. That is faith, hope, and love properly directed. He died and he rose again to reconcile you to himself, to bring you forgiveness, to bring you freedom from sin, to bring you life, all his gifts. And so today the call goes out to you, to all who hear, whether you're here in person, whether you're watching online, no matter how broken you are, no matter how fallen, no matter how idolatrous you have been, no matter how great your shortcomings, no matter how divided your heart, come to Christ, come to him. As Agur discovered and tells us, he, is, he will be a refuge a shield to those who take refuge in him. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. So I beg you, plead with you, urge you today, come to Christ, you will find in him everything for which your heart longs. So if you want to know more about what it means to know Christ, follow him, to be set on the path to wisdom, please speak with, with one of us after the service today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for pursuing our hearts We were once lost and yet you have found us. I I think back to my own life to just first coming to know you and regret the, the places you had to come to find me. But we thank you that you do pursue us. You pursue us to save us. You pursue us to deliver us. Pursue us to reconcile us to yourself. So help us please to hear you, to follow to embrace what you have for us, to be faithful with what you ask of us day by day. We thank you and commit the the future to you. In Jesus' name, amen.